I hope it's everyone's experience. I just have to tell you how grateful I am to be part of this church family first and, and to be your pastor uh, and a friend to so many of you. Second, because the, the consistent report, the, the number one thing I get back from newcomers is that you made them feel welcome and that they felt loved. There's no substitute for that, folks. There is no substitute for genuinely loving people. You can find better everything, particularly biblical content, if that's all we're offering. Okay? There are spectacular Bible teachers that you can listen to on your iPod. What nobody can replace is one Christian genuinely showing the love of Jesus to somebody else who may come to church suspicious about our whole deal. Did you know people come into church suspicious? Do you know how many legitimately tough guys, guys that are tough for a living, get twitchy when they talk to me? <laughs> or from their point of view, God forbid, they have to go into my office? <laughs> so this guy could kill me in five seconds, and he's nervous. Right? And the only reason is I'm, I'm a pastor and some kind of professional Christian. That's what one guy called me. You're a professional Christian. <laughs> You're down-to-earth welcoming, loving, welcome to, willing to meet people where they are and love them just there makes all the difference in the world. We enjoyed that last weekend. We had that yesterday in a wonderful memorial service from a dear friend who we, we miss so much named Farrell Buckles, who gave his life away in service primarily as a homicide detective for Santa Ana PD, was hailed as a legend twice in one press release from his department. And then, quietly in retirement, without many of you knowing it, he and his wife served all of us, thousands and thousands of us, particularly in times of grief, and never drew any attention to themselves. I am so grateful to God every single day of my life to be part of this church and to share this journey with you. Thank you very, very much. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, as we look now to your word, I pray that you'd give me clarity of thought that I would think truthfully, accurately, lovingly, Lord, about you and share what you've taught me uh, with my brothers and sisters and my friends and with people who are here for the first time who I have not yet had a chance to meet. Bless them especially. Help us to hear you and respond personally to you. Not to me, Lord. Thank you for the privilege I have of opening your word, but I pray most of all that people would hear you and respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever wonder what the big deal is with the resurrection? You ever wonder what's at stake? It's a big question. I grew up in Mexico. My parents are missionaries. They're still there. But when we were missionaries in our own right, I was driving along one night in Chihuahua, Mexico, listening to a public radio program that I enjoyed. The guy was a psychiatrist and, and just a really colorful character who was so colorful, in fact, he got kicked off the air about two years after I started listening to him. Uh, but he was interviewing a Christian pastor. It was, it was in Holy Week, the week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, and, and he asked a Christian pastor from Mexico City, sir, if it could be conclusively proven with DNA evidence, we had the technology to say undoubtedly, for sure, absolutely, that we found the body of Jesus, that He died, but He did not rise again. 
These are his remains, and we have now incontrovertible proof that he's actually dead and he stayed dead. Would that matter? And the pastor, to my surprise, said, no, not at all. Wouldn't make any difference at all. The very idea of Jesus is very important, and we could still embrace his values, and it would make absolutely no difference. And that's a really stunning reply from a pastor because that's not at all what the Bible says. What the Bible says, what Paul, who was first a skeptic of the resurrection, one of the most religious men of his day who literally hated the name of Jesus so much so that he was willing to use the means at his disposal to persecute people, put them in prison, and even put them to death for believing in the resurrection of Jesus, what Paul said was at stake in the resurrection of Jesus was simply everything. It's the foundation of our faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, nothing else matters. This is all a farce. In fact, Paul says we're the most pitiful people on earth. And that's true. Think about the songs you've just been singing. Jesus paid it all. Well, not if he actually turned out to be deluded. Not if he stayed dead. He might be nothing more than a moral teacher, but I don't know how much confidence you could have in the moral teaching of a person who predicted his own death, said he would rise from the dead, and then actually stayed dead. That would make his moral teachings at least a little bit suspect, don't you think? If your best friend who loved you dearly also told you in passing that he happened to actually be a ham sandwich, wouldn't you keep an eye on him a little bit close? <laughs> wouldn't you watch him a little bit more closely? Here's how Paul explained it, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, he's referring to himself, his fellow apostles, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The trust you have put in Jesus is meaningless, futile, pitiful. That's what's at stake. Every single thing is at stake. Now, I do not want to drag you into a seminary classroom at all. But I need to step a little bit outside of Scripture before we read what Paul tells us about the resurrection and consider the evidence of the resurrection. I need to step back and give you kind of a bigger view of things that have been happening, particularly in our country, for about the last 200 years. Because when we consider the supernatural resurrection of Jesus in America in the 21st century, we have tremendous biases working against us that are present in popular culture that began with philosophers, scholars, and academics that are shot through our culture that give us many assumptions, that give us a worldview, if you will, of what is true and what is possible that we have to account for. We have biases when we consider the resurrection of Jesus. Here is one of them. The first and the most important in the United States, at least, in Western Europe as well, one of the most important assumptions, in other words, one of the givens that people count on in the world is what we might call secularism or materialism. Now, let me define the word. When I say, especially here in Orange County, that someone is materialistic, I'm talking about what? They love money, right? Philosophers use that term in a different way. If someone has a materialistic worldview or a secularistic worldview, what they mean is that the only thing that is real in the universe is matter, like the wood of this piano, my human flesh, my blood, this pulpit, 
These things are made of matter. They can be seen, they can be tested, they can be tested and weighed, and that's really all that there is. And that is an assumption for reasons that I don't have time and it's not particularly important to discuss with you. That's where we are today. And that leads biologists like Dr. William Provine to make statements like this. This was stated by an evolutionary biologist that taught at Cornell University who died, unfortunately, two years ago. Dr. William Provine, a professor of biological sciences, said this. Let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. Ready? This is a biologist telling you what biology teaches us indisputably. Ready for it? Ready for science? There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be dead. That's the end for me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. Now that sounds titanic. Let me tell you something. For a respected man of science, that is a completely unscientific statement. Why would I say that? Because biology has absolutely nothing to do with the things that he claimed. You remember high school. What does biology study? Life. Life on this earth, right? My life, the life of my dog, the life of what stung you in the ocean. But life on this earth, there's absolutely nothing in biology on this planet that tells you anything about the afterlife. They're just entirely separate fields. You may as well ask your accountant for, treat for cancer treatment. Your CPA may be brilliant, but they know absolutely nothing probably, unless they also went to medical school, and that'd be quite a trick. You wouldn't ask your accountant for cancer treatment, and you wouldn't ask your oncologist to do your taxes. They're just completely different fields of knowledge. But because of the assumptions in our worldview, we're left with things like this. And if you watch for them, you'll see men of science making sweeping, categorical, everybody knows. And if you don't believe this, you're an idiot statements in popular culture telling you about things that they have no actual scientific knowledge of because science doesn't even deal with that matter. Dr. Provine's worldview is particularly depressing. He says there's no foundation for ethics and there's no such thing as human free will. What does he mean? He means you're a highly intelligent animal that responds to forces beyond your control. If everybody lived like that, it would be a very, very frightening world because we would have no reason to say that the young and the strong should not prey upon the elderly and the weak because if evolution teaches us anything, it's this. It is simply about the survival of the fittest. So if a 21-year-old is abusing an elderly person who can no longer defend themselves, who's to say that that's wrong? Provine has no answer. But he's talking about spiritual matters, which is a real field of knowledge based on his own studies. So watch for that. The other bias that we have against us is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. <laughs> and we, we may be, in terms of our snobbery regarding what counts in the age of Twitter, 
what was said lately, what was said last, we've developed a culture that thinks that's what matters most and that's what's true. J.I. Packer, one of the world's great living theologians, said this. Regarding chronological snobbery, here's how he defines it. The newer is the truer, only what is recent is decent. Every shift of ground is a step forward, and every latest word must be hailed as the last word on the subject. That's chronological snobbery. And when you read the accounts of the life of Jesus, you have to guard against it because Jesus lived a long time ago. And there's an inherent cultural bias that if it happened a long time ago, it didn't particularly matter. What we're being told on Facebook is the very latest study to come out of Harvard. That's the new truth until the researchers change their minds six months later, take it back, and publish something else. Let me tell you something about ancient people. Ancient people lived a long time ago, but they were not stupid. Okay, that seems like the most obvious thing in the world, but let that settle for a moment. Many people discount the eyewitness accounts of the, of the lives of the people who saw Jesus back after the dead simply because they lived a long time ago. Newsflash about people in the ancient world. They knew exactly what death was. And they knew what to expect when a person died. Do you know what ancient people expected from the dead when they died? They expected them to stay dead. In fact, I think it's likely that ancient people are much more closely acquainted with death and its trauma and its horror than we are. We've developed through technology a world that almost completely sanitizes death. And if you've got a little money, you can stay very far away from it, and it can look like a pretty comforting scene. In the ancient world, people died quickly, violently, from terrible diseases for which there was no cure. They were very well acquainted with death. Please don't hold it against them. Their understanding of truth and the way life and death work simply because they lived a long time ago. That's chronological snobbery. The third bias is very important, and this is a little geeky, and again, forgive me, I'm trying to be as simple and as clear as I can. If some of this doesn't make sense to you, you want to do some more reading, there's some resources at the, back of the, at the bottom of the page, and I welcome your questions. A third bias that we have to account for when we consider knowing God is this, thinking that you need complete knowledge of God rather than just certain knowledge of God. Here's what that sounds like over a cup of coffee. People have said to me, you're so arrogant. You're an ant considering the entire universe when it comes to you thinking about God. How could you ever put God in a box and think that you understand him? God is so big, so vast that nobody could know him and get his arms around the idea of God. Have you heard anything like that? Well, here's, here's the logical fallacy. Here's the bad thinking in that. I can have certain knowledge of another person. In other words, I can know precisely who they are and know enough at least about them to have an actual living personal relationship with them without understanding everything about them. In fact, understanding everything about them is not available to anybody on this earth. I'll give an example. How many of you men are married? Wives, would you say that the man who raised his hand, if you happen to be with him, does he understand you absolutely? Does he anticipate your every thought? Does he know what you're going to need and particularly what you're feeling at every moment in life? 
Impossible, right? Listen, you're a person. You don't even understand yourself completely. Have you ever walked in a situation thinking to yourself, why did I do that? What's wrong with me? Well, what do you mean? You've been with you the whole time. You've known yourself for as long as you've been alive. If you can't understand you, what makes you think you could ever completely understand anyone else, and particularly God? But here's the point. You have certain knowledge that that's your spouse, that these are your children, that you are yourself. You have certain knowledge. You have true knowledge. You just don't have complete knowledge. Look at your Bibles in 1 Corinthians 15 and listen to Paul explain the certainty that he personally had of the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, please. And we'll read from verse 1. If you're not familiar with Scripture, the man writing was an Orthodox observant Jew. In the strictest religious group of his day, they were known as the Pharisees, and that wasn't a bad word in Paul's day. It was a badge of admiration and dedication and religious zeal. Paul had been not only skeptical but completely closed to the idea of this rogue rabbi from Nazareth dying on a Roman cross and coming back from the dead. He thought it was blasphemy. He thought it was destroying his nation until he met Jesus. And he had personal, actual, living relationship with Jesus who was actually alive. So Paul wrote, he found himself in crazy pagan places like Corinth in modern-day Greece, a city legendary even in the ancient world for its wickedness. Paul preached the gospel. He preached Jesus to them. Many of them came to faith in Jesus. They started trusting and loving and following Jesus. And Paul wrote them in Scripture two letters telling them about Jesus, answering their questions, helping them grow in their new faith. And in 1 Corinthians 15:1, he says this, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Gospel is not a genre of music. It means good news. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the good news about Jesus. That's what he means. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received in which you stand. Here's the effect of trusting Jesus. By which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Here's the gospel in two verses. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, another name for Peter, then to the twelve, His apostles. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. What's Paul telling you? That you can have actual personal knowledge of Jesus. John knew that as well. Look at what John wrote in his first letter. 1 John chapter 1, this is Jesus' closest disciple, his best friend on earth, telling them about his experience with Jesus. John wrote, that which was from the beginning, 
That's a reference to the eternality of Jesus, who simply, mysteriously, almost incomprehensibly, simply is God and is eternal. He was from the beginning, but then John brings it right down to earth. This is a commercial fisherman telling you his personal experience with an actual man named Jesus. That which was from the beginning, from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. John is actually pretty repetitive. This is a commercial fisherman writing in simple Greek in his day, saying, we're bringing you a word of life. We're telling you about the one who was there from the very beginning, who is life itself, but here's the astonishing thing. We saw him, we heard him, we even touched him with our hands. And we're telling you about him so that you may have fellowship, so that you may have life together with us because we have life together with the Father and His Son, and we're telling you all these things so that our joy may be complete. In other words, it all boils down to an actual personal relationship with the God who made you, is available to you, has acted in history so that you can know Him certainly. Not completely, but certainly, as certainly as you know anyone else on earth. John had personal, experiential, empirical, in other words, observed and experienced through his senses, knowledge of Jesus. God wants you to know. Now, what's the evidence for this? If you'll look in 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see Paul's first evidence. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the what? Scriptures. Now, the Scriptures to Paul were the Hebrew Scriptures he grew up with. Here's the astonishing thing that everyone has to account for, and no skeptic can actually easily dismiss without some kind of simple rejection out of hand because of his biases. The life of Jesus was written in astonishing detail in at least four dozen major prophecies, 600 to 1,000 years before he was born. And it's in writing. If you're holding a Bible, you're holding those predictions in your hand. His birth, his character, the manner of his life, the price Judas received to betray him, the nature in detail of his crucifixion, the fact that he would be a poor man but buried among the wealthy, it's all in writing. It was present in the world observably centuries and centuries, actually up to one millennia, 1,000 years before he was on earth. There's no way, there's just no historically honest way to believe that these things were written after he lived because that'd be a neat trick. 
If we wanted to make a false Messiah, we could observe his life, then forge a tremendous amount of documents describing that life and pretend like those documents are very old. That's not what happened. The Hebrew Scriptures were available for a very long time before Jesus walked the earth. So much so that he routinely, we've seen this in the Gospel of Mark, he went into the synagogue, opened the Scriptures, and started reading things written 700 years before he was born, and then calmly telling the people in his hometown synagogue, today these things have been fulfilled right in front of you. It's all right there. You just have to be an honest seeker to look and check in the writing. Dr. Peter W. Stoner was a mathematician at Pasadena City College. He actually did the math. He asked himself, what are the chances of eight of these prophecies being randomly fulfilled? Just eight. There are dozens. Let's just look at the eight biggest, clearest ones. What are the chances that one man in history randomly fulfills all of those things? Here's the chances, one in 100 million billion. Now my question to you, that's a fact of math. Is it reasonable, it's possible, but is it reasonable to believe that the life of Jesus was a fluke? That it just all happened to line up that way? Well, would you buy a ticket for, to win even 10 bucks? Would you pay a dollar if you had a one chance in 100 million billion? Probably not. You have a chance, but it's not reasonable. It's, it's all right there. Look back at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried. In other words, it was an ordinary death followed by a Jewish burial, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. The second thing we have regarding the life of Jesus and His resurrection is not only prophecies regarding His life, but enormous eyewitness testimony from people who were quite certain that He had died because Roman soldiers put Him to death. And it would be impossible for me to describe to you because I'm not a, I'm not a historian, I'm just an avid reader just how enormously skilled the Romans were at war. This is for a very good reason that the Roman Empire existed and spanned so much land and so many cultures and languages. The Roman soldier was a quantum leap forward in modern warfare. Their tactics and their methods are studied even today. And Jesus was put to death by the most fierce professional killers of his day, and at least one man present at the crucifixion was a centurion. In other words, an officer in charge of 100 men. And they made sure he was dead. And then, people who had no reason to hang on to the story, except if they believed it, started writing about it. And reliable written accounts of Jesus' life appeared very shortly after his death, while his contemporaries were still alive. And there was an absolute explosion of writing and copying in the ancient world because the printing press had not invented yet. The only way to transmit written knowledge was to write it down and for people to copy it by hand. And we have just the most astonishing amount of manuscripts. Let me tell you how many. The life of Julius Caesar depends largely upon 12 manuscripts from the ancient world. 
The oldest manuscripts that tell us about Caesar appear to be dated about 900 years after his life. Twelve manuscripts, the very oldest, 900 years after the events they're telling you about. Has anyone ever told you that Julius Caesar may not have existed? No, you take him for granted. Why? Because the historical standards and records in the ancient world are just different than having everything up in the cloud. It's a different standard. Historians understand that. Now, let me tell you about the manuscript, for, the manuscript evidence for Jesus. We have about 5,000 manuscripts that tell us about the life of Jesus. They were written within the lifetime of people who know him personally, and they appear, the very oldest manuscripts we have, there are older perhaps somewhere in the world, or perhaps they simply succumb to the ravages of time, but the very oldest manuscripts we have about Jesus are only about a hundred years after his life. Now, why are there so many, and why are some of them so very, very ancient, so close to his life? Because ancient people who knew what death was saw the most astonishing thing in the world, saw that it was actually predicted in a book, rather, in scriptures, not books, okay? roles of Scripture that they could read for themselves, understand in their own language, and they started feverishly telling the story, first as oral traditions, because the people that Jesus brought back to the dead and the guy he gave his sight back to never quite got over it. Can you understand how that might happen? You might have the greatest coffee time story of all time, right? Guy's telling you about his promotion, and you say, oh, really? Well, I was born blind, and Jesus walked up one day and gave me my sight back. Sir, you win. That's an amazing story. <laughs> and those stories were told over and over again, and within a very short time period after Jesus' resurrection, they were written down, and they went everywhere. Because that's exactly what you would expect if ordinary people who saw Jesus alive after his death saw him actually living, walking, and being with them after his death on the cross. And there's one more thing that Paul tells us about that I absolutely love. Look at verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is enormously important. Paul says there were 500 people he doesn't name. He doesn't name them because there's 500 of them, and they're just ordinary people. But Jesus appeared to 500 Christians at a single time. And then he says, most of them are still alive. A few of them have died. You understand the significance of that statement? What's he saying? If you don't believe me, ask them. There's 500 of them. They can't stop talking about it either. You could check the story with them. Now, when I was in seminary, because seminary is terribly long and tedious, one morning I found myself here in this church building many years ago writing a paper about 2.30 in the morning. And the alarm at the little shacky boarded up church across the street started shrieking. I was using it at the time for Sunday afternoon Bible studies in Spanish language. So I raced over there and got there about the same time the Huntington Beach police did. And I said, sir, I have keys. Um, I use this. I don't own it, but I use this building. I'll go in and shut the alarm off, you like. He'll say, you'll do nothing of the kind. There's some robbers inside. Go halfway down the block. We're bringing a canine unit in. 
Well, they brought the canine unit. They warned the guys, we have a dog. Come on out. We have a dog. You can't get away. Please come out. We have the dog. We're going to release the dog in 30 seconds if you don't come out. Life tip. Hopefully, you're never in that situation. But if they ever say we have a dog, just go ahead and come out, okay? <laughs> come to find out, canines are really good at their job. They found the guy. I knew this from the screaming, which I could hear half a block away. And then I became a witness. I'm 20 years old, probably scared half to death. They put about four spotlights in this guy's face and asked me from the cover of darkness two questions. You know these men? No. You have any reason to believe they have a right to be in this building? No. Hook them up, boys. That was it. Off he went. Went to jail. On the testimony of one eyewitness who said two words. Paul is saying in the days of Jesus, he appeared, he lived among, he talked to 500 people at once. If you were accused of a crime and there were 500 witnesses, do you think they would convict you? You're done. You have no shot. 500 witnesses at five minutes each is more than 40 hours of eyewitness testimony. Jesus has made it quite certain that you can understand this. There's no way to believe this was something like a mass hallucination. You can ask any number of people in our church, people who have experience with drugs and people who work in recovery, helping people recover from drug addiction. Anybody can hallucinate, but it's impossible to get 500 people to hallucinate simultaneously the same thing. That's just not a reasonable conclusion. 500 ordinary people saw Jesus back alive from the dead and simply believed and trusted what had happened. That's the essence of the Christian faith, a turning away from your sin, a repentance from your sin, and a personal trust of the God who acted in history to give you eternal life. So here's the final question. Someone will say, well, why do I still need to have faith? And what do I do with my doubts? Do I just grit my teeth and try to have faith? Well, no, you enter into the experience of his first followers. The first followers of Jesus chose to die rather than deny what they had seen. Paul, who wrote this letter we've been writing, Scripture doesn't tell us, but church history does. He was killed for his faith. Famous doubting Thomas, who we'll hear from shortly, he actually ended up in India and was martyred there, brutally killed rather than take the story back. There was an absolute transformation. There was a complete repentance. There was a U-turn in the life of Jesus' followers. Paul says at the end of this passage in 1 Corinthians, I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. How do you take a man, a religiously convinced man who is a persecutor of Christians and turn them into the best Christian of all? He was absolutely convinced that God had worked a miracle in history and that Jesus had died on the cross for sin and risen from the dead just exactly as God had promised in writing and personally through the very lips of his very human son. And Paul never got over it. 
And that's massively important, folks, because no one will willingly die for a lie if they know it's a lie. People will keep the ruse going, but if you put a gun to their head and say, tell me that lie one more time and you're dead, they'll say, I'm sorry, I made it all up. These men didn't make it up. They had an unplanned encounter with the very Son of God, all kinds of men, a tax collector, commercial fisherman, and a religious persecutor among them. They all turned their lives in the, around in the exact same way and were willing to die for what they had seen and heard rather than take it back for one simple historical reason. God had actually kept His Word and put His Son on the cross and raised Him again from the dead with power to demonstrate that it was all true. So someone will ask, why do I still need to have faith? Well, that's actually simple. You have to have faith because it's a personal relationship. God on purpose will always leave space in any personal relationship, including the relationship you have with Him, for what makes a relationship work, trust. About 28 years ago, I met my wife. She was sitting with her boyfriend at the Dairy Queen on PCH. <laughs> I knew at that moment she was the one. I pitied the man she was with because I knew that his days would be short in the relationship <laughs> because I was going to talk to God about it, and that one was certainly for me. Here's why I'm telling you that. I don't understand my wife absolutely, she'll tell you. So there are many times, and sometimes daily conversations, where I act, actually have very little idea of what's going on, why she's saying what she's saying, what in the world I said to create this particular reaction. But I have certain knowledge of her. I know that's my wife. I know her far better 28 years into the relationship than the day I met her in that Dairy Queen. It's a real relationship. And you know what makes it work and what makes it grow? Trust. The first day I asked her out on a date, she had to have a basic level of trust that we were going on an actual date rather than me trying to sell her Amway soap or something like that. <laughs> There's just a very minimal level of trust. The trust grew as we knew each other personally and behaved in loving and trustworthy ways. Our relationship grew. And it's far better, it's far more certain, it's far richer and deeper 28 years later than it was in the first six months of our dating relationship. That's the way personal relationships work. They all take faith. God said so. Look, Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please Him. How could you ever please God who is a person who made all human beings in His image if you didn't trust Him? It can't happen. Hebrews says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Here's Thomas's experience. Jesus appeared to doubting Thomas and said to him these words, put your finger here and see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Here's Jesus actually offering physical material, put your hand in the wounds proof. What is Thomas's response? Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So decades later, when Thomas was held at the edge 
at the point of edged weapons in India. He chose a brutal death rather than than to deny the person he knew who's named Jesus. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Here's where you come in. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Have you physically seen Jesus? No. He says a blessing to you if you account for him personally and trust him. In fact, here's his invitation for you, and I'm done. From John, the commercial fisherman who saw, heard, and touched the word of life, Jesus Christ. John wrote, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Here's an invitation to you. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. But only if you trust him. See, that's the crossroads you stand at this morning and every day of your life. Do you trust him or do you trust yourself? Religion means you're continuing to trust yourself. You're following standards of your own making or traditions that have been handed down to you and you're trusting yourself to be good enough, do the stuff until you're good enough for God. Jesus said something entirely different. God literally called his, called his life. He called his shot, saying, my son will appear at a specific time in history, live in this way, die on a cross, just as I'm putting it in writing, and rise from the dead three days later to give eternal life to everyone who turns from sin and trusts him. That invitation is open today. In yesterday's service, we had a man who I met for the first time make a profession of faith in Christ. He said yesterday, I believe. That invitation is for you. It's personal. I can tell you about it as a messenger. I can recommend it to you as someone who is in that relationship, but no force on earth is sufficient for you to trust the God who made you and the Savior He sent for you. It's an open invitation to you, but you must accept it. You must trust Him. You must believe Him and be saved, or there is no other way out of this life. He really is life. He stands ready, willing, able, eager to lovingly, faithfully, generously give anyone who trusts Him eternal life, but it will always take faith. And my question for you this morning is, do you believe Him? It matters that much. Can we pray together, please? Could I just ask you of your own personal relationship with Jesus? Has there been a point of humility and repentance in your life where you say to him, Jesus, I give up. I don't understand you completely, but I understand well enough. And I want you, please, Jesus, to save me. If you'll do that, just just talk to him in prayer. He's alive. He's listening. I can tell you with absolute, perfect, experiential, scriptural knowledge, not complete, not absolute, but real, actual knowledge, He saves anyone who calls on Him. He did that for me. He's done it for countless others. If you will say to Him, Jesus, forgive my sin. Be my Lord. Be my God. Be my Savior. I'm sorry for my sin. I can't save myself. You save me, please. He'll do it. And all we would ask simply is that you let us know that on that connection card because we want to start walking the life with Jesus out with you together. That's part of his design.
that we have a personal saving relationship with Him as individuals, but we follow Him together to help each other grow. And we know how exciting and sometimes how difficult those first steps with Jesus can be. So if you trust Him this morning, please let us know. We'll be in touch. We'll take it on your terms, but we want to introduce you to this one who is eternal life. Talk to him. Call out to him. Tell him you're sorry for sin. Ask him to be your Savior. You don't need the right words. It's a person to person. He knows what you mean. He'll know your sincerity. He'll know when you move your trust from yourself to him. Ask him. Call out to him. He'll save you. Lord, I pray for those who are right on the edge of faith. As you did for me many years ago, I ask you in the name of Jesus that you would persuade them, settle their doubts, give them faith enough and trust enough to begin life with you. Thank you, Lord, for the many who are here who already know you, and they know that what I've told them this morning is true. They've seen it in Scripture, and they've lived it out in their day-to-day life. You're real. We love you. We thank you. Thank you, Lord, for those who are turning their lives over to you right now. Thank you that you will welcome and receive them as joyfully as if they were the only person on earth. We commit them to you, and we give you this offering in your name. Amen.